everybody, and welcome to this episode of the MongoDB Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking with Daniel Norman from Prisma. Daniel is a developer advocate at Prisma, and Prisma is a next-generation Node.js ORM that introduces type safety, supports MongoDB in preview, and on this episode, we learn all about Prisma, all about Daniel, and uh, all about ORMs, so stay tuned. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up and subscribe so you get all our notifications of new episodes. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy this episode. Well, Daniel, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well. It's great to be here, Michael. Fantastic. And, and where are you calling in from? So I'm joining from Berlin, Germany, where uh, Prisma originally started. Uh, now we're a remote team, so we have developers all over the world. But uh, I'm joining from Berlin, Germany. Fantastic. Well, let's let's give the audience a little bit more background. Tell the folks who you are and what you do. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Daniel, and uh, I've been a software engineer for about uh, eleven years. And uh, throughout that time. I noticed a pattern in, in the different jobs and different projects that I worked on. And that is that in almost every role as a software engineer, you essentially uh, need to store data. Um, and typically that's done with databases. And so throughout my time as a, a developer, I worked with Postgres, MySQL, MongoDB, all of these different databases. And uh, I've sort of noticed that it's, it's quite uh, challenging at times, but... Um, Throughout my career, I did different uh, uh, stack. I worked with different stacks, different uh, programming languages, and the one thing that sort of seemed to stay uh, more or less the same was the sort of database space. Of course, databases have evolved, and we've seen MongoDB really gain a lot of traction. I think it was one of the databases that, for me, really made it much easier to use hmm. database, especially when compared to relational databases. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been uh, uh, working in open source for a while. Prisma is an open source ORM. And um, yeah, just uh, enjoying really working throughout the technology stacks. I've done some front end, some back end, and uh, infrastructure work um, mm -hmm. throughout my time. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this space because, um, well, obviously, let's, let's get into the concept of an ORM. Tell, tell the folks what an ORM is and and why they might be interested. Yeah, so an ORM is an abbreviation for an object relational mapper. And really the main responsibility of an ORM is to uh, make it possible for you to uh, bridge the gap between the two different paradigms that programming languages, uh, especially object-oriented programming languages, um, and the way that data is stored in typically relational databases. And because these two paradigms are different, that is object-oriented programming and this whole idea of objects and relational databases, the way that they store information is using a different paradigm. Um, it's not quite intuitive how the mapping should happen, especially when you store all of your information in the database, but really you're interacting with it, you're making, you're implementing all of your business logic in an application. And so generally the space of sort of uh, the sort of the superset of ORMs is what is called the database access libraries. And these include, um, you know, low level abstractions such as uh, a database driver. Um, in the case of relational databases, you would just send raw SQL queries and you would get back data. 
And then in the case of, say, MongoDB, you essentially get back objects. Mm. And so ORMs really make it possible for you to use objects to interact with databases and to use these objects that adhere to the same structure as your programming language. Mm -hmm. Now, I should at this point say that not all ORMs are uh, equal. There's generally speaking two sort of main flavors of uh, ORMs, and those are active record ORMs, and uh, the second is data mapper ORMs. And active record ORMs might be very known to Ruby developers who've worked with Ruby on Rails. Um, the name of the uh, ORM in, that is built into uh, Ruby on Rails is called Active Record, but mm -hmm. Active Record also refers to the sort of the approach. And the general idea there is that you have these rich object instances. They, they're called model instances um, that store also the uh, both the information that has been fetched from the database, but they are also rich and they contain all of the methods that you need in order to persist changes. So here's a concrete example in an active record ORM, you fetch a user record or a user row from your database. Um, you make a change say to the last name field, and then you hit on the same object, the dot save button. Um, and that will actually then send a query to the database. And from your perspective as the developer, really all you're doing is just interacting with this one object that mm -hmm. provides all of the functionality. And of course, under the hood, these operations are converted into SQL queries, which are then sent to the database. So that is active record. And then there are data mapper ORMs. And in data mapper ORMs, you essentially introduce this sort of intermittent layer that converts the sort of the, or transforms the, the structure that is coming from the database into an object in your, um, uh, in your programming language. And that typically adheres to uh, or is a, is a children type or a children mm -hmm. class, a child class of uh, the uh, the structure that you've defined, the model structure. And, and that sort of the data mapper pattern gives you a bit more decoupling between the database layer and sort of how you interact with objects inside your application. Mm -hmm. And at this point, it's maybe worth introducing Prisma because Prisma in many ways, we, we call it a next generation ORM and that is because we've taken, we sort of really studied um, a lot of the challenges as a very common um, problem known with uh, ORMs that is known as the object um, relational impedance, sorry, mm -hmm. the object relational impedance, impedance mismatch. And uh, that refers to this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to make sure we, we, we dig into the impedance mismatch. Go ahead and explain that. Yeah, so... This is a, a general term used to describe the challenge of um, of sort of dealing with these two representations that don't really sort of match one to one. And um, there's, a, there's a famous essay called The Vietnam of Computer Science, which really refers to how many of the ORMs in this space um, have really failed to bring sort of the promise and, and ORMs are a very controversial topic and, and, and probably rightly so because it's such a critical piece. I mean, if you're working with any kind of data, then you really care about how your developers uh, or how developers in general sort of interact with that database and really make assumptions that are correct. And uh, when you have a lot of these challenges like the object impedance mismatch that really just describes the sort of mismatch between the representations and sort of like there no being clear guidance on how you should represent things in your programming language. Mm -hmm. um, so 
these were these are challenges that have sort of been accepted and there's different opinions about how they should be dealt with some say well you should use the data mapper pattern some say well the active record is better some say well you know what all ORMs they will take you 80% of the way there and for the 20% of the cases where you need raw SQL to do some advanced stuff great you should have an escape hatch and you should be able to do that and in that sense you really get a lot of sort of benefits from using the ORM because you don't just repeat yourself constantly writing the same queries. Mm. That's sort of been the the state of like the landscape for a while. And there's been many different ideas um, in the sort of developer communities about how we can improve them. And I think one of them that is really gaining traction is this idea of pipe safety. And uh, if we look at, say, uh, the JavaScript ecosystem, we've really seen what happened since the introduction of TypeScript. Uh, I believe it was around 2015 or 16 Mm -hmm. when TypeScript came around. And really, it followed a very simple proposition. It was uh, the same JavaScript code you write, you annotate it with some types, and then will ensure that you make less mistakes in your code. And at first, you know, there was a bit of pushback, but I think... What we're seeing now is sort of time has passed and the ecosystem has matured and both the TypeScript compiler itself has matured is we've seen that if we can offer through libraries, I mean, the Node.js ecosystem and JavaScript even broadly is really known for its rich ecosystem of libraries and so on. And so many developers, when they're building Node.js applications, really they are uh, not always writing everything themselves they're using they're relying on a lot of libraries and so i think one of the big sort of breakthroughs in so in terms of typescript adoption and adoption of the idea of type safety was the adoption of typescript by libraries because suddenly if you're a library user and whatever library it is suddenly your experience using that library is much better you get these rich auto completion mm-hmm. um, you get the squiggly lines and what you see is that you tighten really this feedback loop that, um, and by feedback loop, I mean, say you write code and, and there's many different situations where you're writing an SQL query or you're writing a database operation and you can't verify that to be correct until you actually run it. And so then you start relying on unit tests or you, know, you, you start relying on u- runtime functionality in order to ensure the correctness of whatever it is that you're building. And what TypeScript offers is it offers a tighter feedback loop. So as you're writing your code, assuming that the code is typed, you're using a library. If you pass a, an argument that is an integer or a number, I should say, in, in TypeScript, mm. and the function expects a string, then you will get a squiggly line and you will get that error very quickly as you're writing the code. And that's and built so, into the library. Yes. So... Mm-hmm. In general, libraries now will include these typings inside. In fact, many libraries are now written from the get-go using TypeScript. So it's not even an additional step for the library author because he's written the whole library in TypeScript. But Mm -hmm. really, all of these benefits can also be had even if you're just using JavaScript and you're importing a TypeScript project as long as you're using VS Code because VS Code has the sort of TypeScript uh, language server sort of running in the background and type checking your code. Mm. Um, and so really all, I should at this point say that all valid JavaScript code is valid TypeScript code, which is why you can get all of these benefits. It's a super so this, yeah. Yeah. And again, this is just the broad sort of evolution of the idea of type safety and TypeScript in the uh, JavaScript and Node.js ecosystem. Yeah. 
So I, I want to pause for a moment on the TypeScript, and, and I love the, the progression so far. We've talked about, you know, at a high level, what Prisma is, what ORMs are. We didn't really touch on what the difference between an ORM and an ODM is, but I like the, the depth that we've touched on the ORM space. But I'm, I have to ask the question, MongoDB is essentially JSON, well, it's BSON, typing, and as it's represented in JavaScript code, uh, it's objects. And you natively interact with the database using objects. Why would I need an ORM or an ODM if I'm using an object-oriented or a document-based database like MongoDB? That's a great question. Maybe we can first tackle the ORM versus ODM. I think okay, you've great. done most of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, really, okay, so we had these ORMs. These were libraries that essentially just made it easier for you as a developer to interact with your database. In many cases, you didn't need to know raw SQL. But then comes MongoDB along, and it's like, well, you can persist your objects pretty much mm -hmm. as they are in the database. Why do you suddenly need to introduce uh, something like a library or an abstraction on top of that? And there's a bunch of different reasons. I think the main one to start with, and it would be probably good to sort of take Mongoose as an example, mm -hmm. because Mongoose is a, a very popular uh, ODM, object document mapper for um, Node.js. And I think the main value proposition that Mongoose offers is this idea of a schema. And this touches on another important feature in MongoDB, and that is that MongoDB doesn't enforce a strict schema by default. Mm. Um, and so you have this flexible schema, and this is great because as a developer, you just start pumping your data into the database, into MongoDB, and you're all happy. It's stored, and it's all great. But then suddenly your project becomes popular, and suddenly you have <laughs> feature requests, and suddenly you want to invest more time in implementing those feature requests. So you start going ahead and you're like, oh, well, I need to store now. I want to provide authentication through Facebook and through Google. Um, so you start adding all of these functionality and suddenly you need to store that new information somewhere. So suddenly your new user objects uh, or documents, I should say in the case of MongoDB, they contain more information. And what you end up having is you end up having a collection of documents that um, do not match, do not have the same shape, do not have, do not fit into the same schema. Mm. And this can really be a challenge because suddenly it becomes an application level responsibility to manage all of these differences between documents within a single collection. So you have a collection of users and each user looks perhaps slightly different depending on when it was created. And so that sort of opens, that sort of lays out the general problem of having inconsistencies within a single collection. Mm -hmm. It's by definition, not necessarily a bad thing because it allows you this rapid prototyping, but suddenly it becomes this new responsibility that you have to manage. And there's many different ways to sort of manage that. But I think if I remember correctly, um, MongoDB introduced this idea of JSON schema validation. Yeah. Was it in version 3.0? 2.36 maybe yeah mm -hmm. so at some point uh the mongodb team right you decided hey like this could be valuable to some of our users and i'm sure that many of those users had been using mongodb for a while and suddenly they realized well we want to put some more guardrails in place and um mongoose had already been around and it introduced this idea of a schema and 
really the word schema comes from the Greek word schema, which means shape, which mm -hmm. coming back to this idea of types and type safety, really a type is really just describing the shape of information. I mean, sure, there's a whole uh, academic area of research and, and type theory and set theory and whatnot. And of course, it's a bit more complex than that. But on an abstract level, really, I think that types and schemas really have a lot in common. And the reason that I mentioned this was because one of the ways of dealing with these challenges of inconsistencies in your um, collection in MongoDB was to introduce a schema to put more guardrails in place to really constrain your own work as a developer to avoid mm. making mistakes. And uh, Mongoose introduced that by introducing a schema on the application layer, which means that Mongoose itself is the one that sort of verifies that you're adhering to that schema. MongoDB's uh, uh, schema validation using JSON schema was also a very welcome addition and it allowed us now to sort of push that responsibility to the database layer. Mm -hmm. And these are all great solutions. However, there's one challenge with them and that is when do you get that feedback about you uh, not adhering to that schema? So for example, you have a user collection and you've defined the schema for it. In Mongoose, that would be, say, using your uh, Mongoose model object, I believe it's called, where you mm -hmm. sort of define the schema for a user. Yep. And then you say, okay, I want to have a first name, an email, and say a password hash. And then suddenly you go ahead and you decide, I want to start persisting also a last name or a surname, as I'm used to saying. And um, you have to actually run that query in order to get that validation error. So you actually, again, it's a runtime check that happens mm -hmm. when you actually submit that request. In the database, yeah. It, well, in the case of Mongoose, it's Mongoose in the application layer. If it's JSON schema, schema using right. uh, okay. MongoDB, then it happens, of course, when you submit the query to MongoDB, and then it's like, well, no, you have the schema in place, invalid, and you get the validation error back. Mm -hmm. Prisma sort of took this idea of like introducing a schema and was like, can we enforce this the earliest possible point of time and that is as you're actually writing the query yeah and as i mentioned before you know in the case of libraries with arguments really as you're writing the query you get the squiggly lines as you try to persist a last name field mm -hmm. into your mongodb database and so i think really the sort of the tldr version of this very long-winded answer is you get a tighter feedback loop uh, when it comes to enforcing the schema validation yeah fantastic so yeah, I love it. And, you know, the stated mission of developer advocacy at MongoDB is to improve the lives of, of developers and make it make it easier for what they do. And I think that falls right in line with it. So um, I love um, what you talked about at developer time, not at runtime, not at test time, but at, at developer time. And it actually has me thinking about tools like Copilot. I'm wondering if it can even back it up even further. Now that you've got type safety, you've got your schema in place with your ORM. Um, I'm wondering if that's going to simplify the process of suggesting code that you may be trying to write. Have you explored Copilot at all? Yes, I have. In fact, uh, as a developer advocate at Prisma, I do also a lot of writing, just not just code, but also, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 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 the English language, I should say. And yeah. uh, it's it's just been fascinating to see it almost finish my sentences as I'm writing Markdown, even in just English. Um, but yeah, sort of broadening this uh, or rather focusing this on the idea of like programming as you're writing your queries, like can something like Copilot help you? 
absolutely. Um, but I think one of the things that, uh, you know, most of the users who try out Prisma, what they notice is that they get this rich auto completion. Mm -hmm. And so with this rich auto completion, really, I think it takes you already 90% of the way there as you're writing the query, because you have the underlying type as you're writing the query, you, mm -hmm. um, you essentially do control space in VS code and it shows you the suggestions and those suggestions that you get are just the fields that are defined in your schema. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not sure how much more that can be improved, you know, from the perspective of a developer, but, uh, I, I think that. Uh, GitHub Copilot in general is is a great uh, it's a great sort of leap for the whole ecosystem and yeah it'll be curious to see where that uh, what kind of developer tools we can build using that technology I think it's for still sure. very early yeah definitely so I, I want to get back to Prisma and um, I'm thinking about Prisma as a cross platform tool maybe talk a little bit about the use cases or you know, the development environment where Prisma might be especially attractive in that space. Yeah. Michael, would it be okay if I introduce, I, uh, I, I spoke a lot about type safety, but I think there's two more important oh, concepts yeah. Absolutely. that I'd love to cover. And I think that will sort of set the foundation for like, okay, how can this be useful in different scenarios? Yeah. Sounds good. Um, so we spoke about type safety and really as a way to ensure that the application code that you're writing interacting with the database can only do so safely. So if you don't have in your schema, in your database schema, a last name or a surname field, then you should get an error for that as soon as possible during development time. And so that was this idea of type safety. But type safety typically requires you to define these types up front. And as I mentioned, if you're using libraries, that have been built in TypeScript or that have TypeScript typings built in, then you get that sort of at zero cost. But given that you want to get this type safety now for your database schema, that's not something that a library can know for you. Mm. So this leads us to the second um, important concept in Prisma, and that is code generation. And the idea of code generation is really based around this idea that you should only need to write things once. So for example, if you're working with relational databases, typically you have to define your database schema in SQL, and then you also have to define your models and they have to match one-to-one, -one, and then it's still your responsibility between to do that mapping. Of course, with MongoDB, you don't have the strict schema. Um, by default. By default, right? <laughs> but um, you can sort of introduce that. And yeah. so code generation in Prisma is built around this idea okay, you should only write things once. And that leads us to the third concept, which is the Prisma schema. So the Prisma schema is a single source of truth for both your database schema and your application models. And coming back to code generation, there are two main things that are generated from your Prisma schema. The first one is the type safe database client, which is sort mm -hmm. of tailored based on the schema that you've defined. And the second thing is migration files. And... Uh, right now, the MongoDB connector for uh, Prisma is in preview mode, and we're still working on sort of improving because we don't have this concept of SQL migrations in Mongo, but still, whenever you change your schema, you probably want to carry out data migrations. Like if you introduce a last name field and you had just a name field until up until that point, you might want to go through each of the documents, split the name, 
into two fields and then move the last name into the new field, into the new like uh, field. So that would so, be. So let me let me just clarify. Are you saying that Prisma's ORM will on a migration go back through the database and adjust the the schema? If a, hey. if a document I had written previously yesterday before introducing a change to the schema did not have last name, it only had name, um, and I adjust the schema in Prisma to include a first name, last name, I perform a migration. Now, when I go back to my database, will I see a blank first name and last name? Uh, great question. Yes. So right now we haven't implemented all of this functionality. So okay. a lot of what I'm describing when it comes to data migrations is really like the final, the last mile for us in terms of really like um, making um, the MongoDB support production ready. Mm -hmm. And the big thing is really introspection, this idea of like scanning through your documents and being able to tell you, hey, you have these discrepancies. That's one aspect. And the second aspect is it's natural for you if you're doing rapid development, if you're building an iterative product that is continuously evolving to introduce, to change your schema. And so providing the tooling, they're using Prisma Migrate, which has already been sort of production ready for almost a year now um, mm. for relational databases. So then taking a lot of the ideas from there and applying them to MongoDB. But the idea there is that you introduce a new field and then you can define a data migration that will actually where it allow you to control how you migrate those old documents that didn't have the first name and the last name into mm -hmm. the new structure. And um, so that's sort of what I mean with migrations. So by having this Prisma schema, the single source of truth in your GitHub repository, typically that's where it would be stored, then you have the full history of your schema. And then based on that, you can also make all sorts of decisions about how you want to migrate the data to ensure that all of your documents are consistent. And this is really what we're working on now because some of the concepts in MongoDB don't map one-to-one -one with relational databases. And really, we've learned a lot from building Prisma Migrate initially for relational databases, and now mm -hmm. we're sort of applying those concepts to data migrations in uh, MongoDB. So just yeah. to sum it up, uh, code generation, the Prisma schema, the single source of truth, we co-generate, like we generate the, the fully type-safe uh, database client for you based on the Prisma schema, and also will help you to create the data migrations based on the changes that you carry out in your schema. And then finally, type safety, which means that you get that tight feedback loop as you're writing the code. Mm. Um, and I guess that sort of brings us back to the original question you asked. Okay, so in which environments um, is this useful? Who can benefit from this? But I'll pause there in case yeah. that was too I, I just long. wanted to ask one more question about active record that you talked about earlier on in the episode. And and I understand the concept of storing your methods with your your object definitions. Um, does Prisma, Prisma will support that, correct? Uh, no. So Prisma ah. is, in a sense, it's a next generation ORM. So okay. what you get is you get this generated library that you import into your application. You instantiate it to initiate the connection with the database. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you have there uh, like namespaces for each model or each collection. A model mm -hmm. in the Prisma schema maps onto a collection or a table yep. in relational database. And then for each one of those, you have a set of uh, methods that you can use in order to query the database. All okay. of these methods are scoped within the uh, Prisma library that you import that has been generated for you. And it will always just return plain old JavaScript objects. 
that are fully typed. So if you choose to also fetch references, embedded docs, all of these, these will be fully typed for you. Um, and the benefit of that is that you don't necessarily need a lot of these active record functionality because essentially mm -hmm. if you want to make a change, well, you get that returned object, you can make changes to it. As long mm -hmm. as it still adheres to the type, you won't get an, a type error. And then you can use that data that you've changed in order to persist that in a separate query. But the sort of the contract there when it comes to Prisma client is that it always returns plain old JavaScript objects that are fully typed. Okay. Um, so so the, the use case I was thinking about around the methods, I mean, I typically with Mongoose, for example, will create a get and a save uh, pre and post and uh, do some formatting. For example, with, uh, with money, with a money field, a currency field, I'll, I'll ensure that it's the right number of digits or multiply. Um, how would I accomplish that with Prisma? One thing I had a question for, what did you mean by pre and post? Oh, That's... pre uh, pre-save uh, pre and, and post-save. You have hooks in the Mongoose library to create functions that are, that are fired, that are triggered on right before you write to the database, right after you write to, to the database, and right before and you read in. And in this example that you gave, what were you doing prior to the query and what were you mm -hmm. doing after the um, query? Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on an e-commerce application at the moment, and... Uh, I'm prompting the user for a value um, that will be stored in the database. Actually, uh, for the stu GitHub Student Developer Program, we uh, we issue credits, and the credits are in some value. And uh, on the administrative interface, I prompt the, the administrator to put in the value of the credit code. And the credit code can be put in as 50, like a whole number. Um, I want to store that in the database as currency, so I want to multiply it by 100 and store it as 5,000 with a, an implicit decimal point. So I do that in a in a pre-write, uh, pre-save. Yes, so how would you achieve this with Prisma? Um, well, essentially, you have to know what your input type is, and you're getting that essentially from user input, mm -hmm. and you might want to run some validation on it to make sure that it's only digits. This is something that cannot be done on the type level mm -hmm. because it's user input that, you can only know about in during runtime. Um, and so once you've it passed the validation, then you sort of still have the full flexibility to transform it in any way you need before persisting it in the database. Um, typically, we also support the decimal type um, mm -hmm. in Prisma. And I need to look up how that maps onto the MongoDB types, but really, uh, I believe that it's just represented um, because- Pro Probably floating or, or integer. Yeah. Or a string, really. Or, or a string, um, yeah. I think, yeah, I think it could very well be a string that it's represented as. Um, and so that's generally how you would approach a similar thing. Now, mm. I should say we also have this thing called middleware. Um, we also have hooks where you can sort of hooks into different um, uh, parts. Middleware essentially allows you to tap into uh, the process of uh, query execution. So you can have a central place where you sort of define a hook and you might use that for instrumenting your application, like tracking counts of the queries. Um, so you can do a lot of different things with middleware similar to what you would do with hooks. And we also have this idea of like events that you can sort of listen to that are very similar to hooks. Okay, great. Well, it sounds flexible and I like that. Love, love the flexibility. So, so let's continue and let's talk a little bit about the use cases where Prisma might be especially helpful. Yeah, I think it's 
really, it starts from an individual developer. And I, I can say this just based on my own experiences of, of, you know, working at different companies and suddenly there's a, an idea for a new project and they decide, okay, the team will form a team that will focus on, on bringing this project to fruition. And in such situations, then you would typically, you know, start out with some kind of an MVP. And during the MVP stage, really, you want to make something that works quickly and something that could be potentially built upon that isn't necessarily just a, a demo that can be thrown away. And I think in such situations, because you just get this a lot more confidence, just knowing that you're making the correct queries as you're writing them, in addition to giving you this like healthy guardrails of like, you have to define the scheme up front. That's mm -hmm. always the case, yeah. unless you're sort of introducing Prisma into an existing project. So really, I think when you're starting a new project, there's a lot of benefits. You get this sort of productivity um, uh, boost through the generated code and all of the generated types that give you this rich auto completion. It's much easier, for example, with Prisma to do what we call nested writes, for mm -hmm. example, there's generally two data modeling approaches with MongoDB. You can use embedding and you can use references. And mm -hmm. I guess references are reserved for situations where you might not care so much about the performance, but you might care more about keeping information normalized and sort of consistent in a different way. And uh, what you can do with Prisma is really using a single query. You can do operations that work on a multiple collections. So for example, if you have a reference between say a user and posts, assuming that you go for the normalization approach where you have two collections and a reference between them, mm -hmm. you can create a new a user and multiple posts all in a single query. Um, and you get the type safety there. You also get the confidence that you know you don't necessarily need to write all of the tests to test out all of the different possible scenarios in order to know that the queries are valid. So that already gives you sort of this big boost. And that's mm. like on the individual level. I think where it gets really interesting is what you see happening the moment that it's adopted within teams. And typically development teams today, I mean, they're structured in many different ways, but I think it's still very common to sort of have dedicated teams working on multiple clients, especially in companies where you might have a single API, GraphQL, REST, whatever it is. And you might have multiple teams working, say, on an Android app, an iOS app, and a web app. And of course, there's some horizontal co concerns where they might meet together. But if we sort of think about these environments that are very common e-commerce in, in a lot of different industries, what you see is that essentially the API becomes something like a contract, a contract between backend developers and the frontend developers who are building the different clients. And I think in such situations, we've seen just what happened to the ecosystem as a result of something like GraphQL when compared to REST. Um, at the time, REST was a very loosely defined specification. And when GraphQL came around and sort of imposed this idea of a schema, I think that a lot of people sort of like realized, wow, this is like, at the time, I know that contract testing was a big thing. I think it was being done at SoundCloud. And it was like, that was sort of the state of the art of like doing these tests between clients and uh, between consumers and, and producers and like, you know, clients and APIs um, in such environments where you mm -hmm. have multiple clients consuming from the same API. And I think that GraphQL eliminated a lot of the challenges inherent to the approaches prior with REST. I mean, now you have this open API spec, 
that you can generate. And there's a lot of tooling, but if you look at just GraphQL, you have a single schema. And from that schema, you define, you know, your resolvers and, and you can provide a lot of rich functionality. And I think that that's was sort of a testament to the power of schemas and sort of coming back to this idea of the Prisma schema as a single source of truth. I think that in a team collaborating on a project, both multifunctional doing full stack or a single team sort of building an API and that being consumed by different users, you get a lot of these benefits from just having this one file that is like the contract that everyone sort of agrees on. Um, and sort of everything is derived from that. Um, mm -hmm. If that's the GraphQL sort of layer that is built on top of the database schema, that's, you know, that's one thing where you have at least this sort of base contract. Um, and so I think that's one benefit that you get in Teams. Uh, the second is this idea of type safety. It's a lot easier now to sort of do code reviews um, because if someone you know, was writing raw SQL and he didn't write tests for the new functionality that he added that makes use of raw SQL queries, then suddenly it's up to you to write those tests or to test out the queries and to sort of like manually go through a lot of that. If you have a way to verify that at build time, and really this should be possible. Um, it's, uh, I, I think that, uh, I mean, it is possible to verify, I mean, either using Prisma, but also I think that we're seeing now uh, a whole, uh, the ecosystem growing and people understanding, oh, you should be able to also type check raw SQL queries or, you know, whatever it is, uh, operation that you're doing against another system. If you can verify the correctness of that operation very early on, then suddenly you get a lot of these improvements in team collaboration because suddenly reviewing someone else's work is not so... Um, it's not such a big burden. Mm. And this sort of like is a good leeway into what we're trying to achieve with uh, the Prisma data platform, really. We believe that, you know, a lot of the scenarios that, you know, we speak about in these kinds of conversations and interviews about, you know, software development, really, they don't really take into account the sort of diversity and the complexity that you see in, you know, enterprise and, and just really in the industry in practice. And what you see in reality is that a lot of companies have a lot of legacy code bases. They have a lot of existing projects. They typically have multiple databases and, mm -hmm. you know, and one of the big challenges there is that each one of these databases might have its own, its own authorization mechanism. And, and suddenly horizontal concerns like how do you streamline querying or how do you fetch data from someone else's database in a different team, right? Like say you have a bigger company where sort of you have microservices and you have uh, you know, one team that is responsible for fulfillment and one uh, team responsible for payments and the other for you know, the shopping cart in kind of like mm -hmm. an e-commerce business. Suddenly you have three different data stores that all hold critical information for something that you want to do within the company or, you know, uh, the fulfillment team wants to know how long it takes from the moment that the user makes an order until the moment that the delivery gets sent out. And in order to sort of even introduce this idea of, of, uh, of, uh, of an order, they have to pull data from a different database that they don't own as a team. And of course there's compliance and, all sorts of challenges that ar arise in such situations. And so 
the vision of sort of the Prisma data platform. So Prisma today supports MySQL, Postgres, uh, SQL Server, Azure SQL, and MongoDB, which is currently in preview. Mm -hmm. um, we're hopefully going to bring that to general availability by the end of this year. Mm -hmm. And then the idea is, okay, you still have this unified querying interface that works with all of these different databases, and you now have a schema you know, that is consistent or at least the same kind of schema that can be used to represent all of these different databases. And you have code generation, so you get this zero type, zero cost type safety in your clients. And so it's like, okay, so how can we make it possible now for uh, a developer in team A to pull data from team B? And this is where the Prisma data platform comes in. And the Prisma data platform really is an idea that um, is heavily, heavily inspired by the technologies, the custom data layer, data access layer that has been used in companies like Facebook and Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, at Facebook, they developed a technology called Tau, mm -hmm. which essentially allows them to both scale their uh, you know, databases, but also give any developer who's starting out access to all the data that he needs without sort of having to like now connect directly to this database or that database. Mm -hmm. At Twitter, they built something slightly different, but sort of, again, the same idea in mind um, called Strato, which was, again, to sort of build this data access layer that allows you to fetch data from uh, different teams. And when you sort of have this, so this is basically the vision to, to really simplify those processes. and allow you essentially if you're starting out a new project with prisma to go from a single developer all the way to say 150 or 200 employees and sort of provide you with the tooling uh, to grow that um, mm. and uh, that is essentially a cloud product it's already live and it can be used today i mean one of the ways that you can try out prisma today is of course it's open source so you can install it locally and uh, try it out and of, of course, you can also try it using the Prisma data platform and um, essentially allows you there to create a GitHub projects and to provision a database and to you have a data browser, something like, uh, I believe it's called MongoDB, uh, not Atlas, Compass. Compass. Mm -hmm. is a, com Compass, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what uh, SQL, uh, sorry, uh, Prisma Studio is. And, and we have a hosted version of that in the Prisma data platform. Mm -hmm. And you can already sort of play around and, and get a feel for different queries and what they look like. And so this is currently sort of like the baseline for our broader vision of this Prisma data platform. But yeah, I'll pause a, there because that was a lot. No, it's so exciting. I, I, I'd love to hear more about the, the data platform. Um, what's happening under the covers? Where is this data actually residing? Yeah, so again, the data resides uh, in the database where it's always been. Um, the Prisma data platform, of course, if you're starting a new project, can help you if you want to provision a, a, a database. Um, and so right now we support Heroku and we're also working on, mm -hmm. on adding Planet Scale, which is a highly scalable version of MySQL. And of course, in the near future, we'll also be looking to integrate with MongoDB Atlas so that you can really have a choice. But this is if you're starting a new project. If you have an existing project, really, the idea is for you to be able to connect all of those databases mm -hmm. through the cloud platform. And then essentially um, you have, we, we run this sort of infrastructure component for you um, that serves as like, uh, we call it the data proxy. And 
-hmm. In the first state, we're now like uh, about to launch the early access version of that. It'll do a lot of the connection management when it comes to serverless deployment. So uh, I'm, I'm, in the last couple of years, really, the serverless paradigm has really taken um, the development community and the infrastructure world really uh, quite far ahead. Um, but there are still many challenges when it comes to connection management because essentially a lot of these serverless functions, they, um, each one of them serves only a single user request. And essentially what you have is you have the situation where you have loads of these instances opening up a connection to the database and then closing it and then mm. opening and closing it. And uh, databases typically weren't really built to sort of handle that level of connection churn, especially because typically you had multiplexed apps where mm -hmm. you have an, a single Node.js instance serving 100 user requests at the same time using the event loop. And then mm -hmm. sort of funneling the queries, if you had database queries for each one of those user requests, onto the database. But that Node.js server sort of maintains that open connection to the database. And so as requests in, it just funnels them through. With serverless, you have these new instances that are starting up and they're only serving a single user request and they have to open up a connection and close mm -hmm. it. And for a lot of databases, they have to sort of allocate memory and every time a new connection opens up. And of course you have today, everything is using TLS. Um, and so you have TLS termination and that a adds overhead. a little bit of overhead. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of developers who sort of been attracted to serverless because of the allure of like, oh, uh, infinite scalability, you don't have to worry about running servers, have really been a bit burnt, I think, yeah. um, by uh, some of the rough edges that are still present. And so the first step really is for us to solve this connection pulling problem. Mm -hmm. That is just a pain if you're using serverless environments. Mm -hmm. um, and we do that essentially, I should mention this is a, an important technical detail when it comes to Prisma, but Prisma uses uh, an engine, um, what we call the Prisma engine or the query engine that is written in Rust and is highly optimized. And that handles all of the heavy lifting. And so that typically runs as a sidecar process inside your application. Mm -hmm. And uh, by uh, sort of moving to the cloud or the Prisma data platform, what we can do is now we can essentially run this for you in the cloud that mm -hmm. maintains the connection pool to your database. And then all of your queries and so sort of coming from say serverless functions, first of all, the serverless functions are much lighter because they just sort of relay all of the work to the proxy and that mm -hmm. maintains an open connection pool to the database. So you get a lot of these sort of performance optimizations out of the box, in addition to all of the added functionality like being able to have collaborators through this query browser, um, you can sort of explore queries, you can explore the data um, and that sort of provides the foundation now for all of the collaboration workflows around this, working with multiple environments, querying across multiple different data sources. Of course, this is part of the grand division, but like, you know, it always sort of has this like a couple of steps, a couple of steps, and suddenly it's like, oh, wow, now we get this. Mm. So my feeling is that um, solving the serverless problem is like the foundation for doing a lot of yeah. this because... I'm curious about, um, so now that you've got this proxy layer, is there is there caching? Are there optimizations associated with caching data on request or? Yeah, this is of course one of yeah. the, um, okay. like the main features that we can introduce once you have a proxy sitting in between yeah. that does connection, but it's like, okay, caching becomes trivial. Mm -hmm. 
it's exciting. So it's definitely on the roadmap. Yeah. Hey, Caching, so where... I mean, audit logs. I mean, there's so many different, you know, potential sort of use cases for yeah. this, depending on the kind of company and the kind of product that you're building. Absolutely. So where can we see Prisma in the wild? Who's using it that we might recognize if you can m drop any names? Yeah, sure. Um, so you may have heard of uh, Rafa. They produce some like high end uh, cycling equipment. Mm -hmm. um, a company called uh, Poppy. Um, Gatsby is also using that oh, wow. internally. Mm -hmm. um, I have heard, I, I don't know, it, it wasn't sort of in a, form, a formal thing, so I probably shouldn't mention that, but uh, Poppy is building um, like a, a sort of a car sharing platform that is already in use, I believe, in the Netherlands and uh, I think also in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And they're using uh, Prisma for this. Uh, Twiga, which offers uh, all sorts of like products, um, <coughs> groceries and so on like direct mm -hmm. from suppliers they're using prisma um did i mention gatsby's using it internally mm -hmm. um grover which uh, uh, basically resells uh sort of uh sorry not resells um leases different gadgets um they're using this and uh, Panther, which is also an automated global like payment, a payroll and compliance for remote teams are also using Prisma under the hood. So really we've been seeing over the last, so we released Prisma to general availability around uh, May, June of 2020. And mm -hmm. since then we've really seen sort of the adoption grow um, quite steadily in that time. And, and I think we're going to see more and more uh, products that are like, oh, like, you know, they, they, a lot of products, you know, when they're first developed, they're not always doing this out in the open and they're not always sharing all of the information about their engineering stack, but, uh, yeah. it'll be really interesting. I think in the next couple of months to see how it's being used. I mean, just, uh, looking at some of the use cases now, they seem to be quite versatile. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, yeah. So we're just about out of time, but what I'd love to do is invite you to come back. Let's do a, a stream and let's have you fire up a, a browser and, and show us what it looks like to interact with Prisma and, and kind of do a, a little demo. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do that. You know, uh, I think in the words of Linus Torvalds, uh, talk is cheap. Show me the code. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can talk all day, but uh, really, I think it's best uh, emphasized once you see it in practice. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we'll get that on the calendar for one of the next episodes that we put out. Uh, Daniel, this has been a great conversation. I've learned quite a bit, and uh, I'm excited to jump in and try Prisma. Anything else you want to share with the audience before we wrap? Uh, no, I just wanted to thank you uh, really for like you know asking all these great questions. It's been a really fun chat, and I hope that we can continue this discussion. And besides that, that if you want to try out Prisma, you can go to www.prisma.io. Um, you can also try out the cloud product. If you're using serverless, I think you might gain a lot of benefit from the upcoming data proxy. And I'll leave it at that. I think the rest we can dive into in the next one. Sounds good. Thanks once again. 